passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, again, welcome to Crosswinds Church, uh, where our desire is to help develop within you a passion for God and a compassion for your neighbor. And, and one of the ways that we've been doing that is we've been going through our a journey through the book of Ephesians over the past uh, several weeks for us. And our Spirit Lake campus has actually been going through this for several months as we've been looking at our identity in Christ Jesus. As we've been studying this book through our series called Who Am I? We've, we've really discovered that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is transformational in who we are and how we understand who we are. In the last couple of weeks, we've been camping on a specific topic, and that topic has been being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does it really mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? For a lot of us, this can be kind of a confusing, intimidating topic because of all the different ways that that phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, can be interpreted. But what we've seen as we've been working through this text is that we've, it just basically means doing the things and living the life that God wants you to live. That's all it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And God, in His Holy Spirit, He, he empowers us, He indwells within us to enable us to live that holy life. A couple of weeks ago, we saw what it meant to be a wife filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at what it means to be a husband who is spirit-filled. Uh, last week's uh, Pastor Kurt, our senior pastor in Spirit Lake, he taught us about what it means to be a spirit-filled child and a spirit-filled uh, parent. And this morning, we're going to look at one final area that, that Paul addresses in this letter about being filled with the Spirit, and that is how Jesus affects the way that we work. See, in the last couple of years, we've seen this new emphasis in the church on connecting Sunday to Monday. It seems like for the last several years, there's actually been a neglect of this, and God has been trying to counteract that by convicting people to talk about this issue, to address this issue. And so we've seen a slew of Christian leaders writing books about this topic and holding seminars and many other things. It's really exciting to see. And actually, Pastor Kurt and I are in the, the beginning stages of talking through uh, having a sermon series on a theology of work, or basically, what does the Bible tell us about work, and how does that affect how we live our daily lives? That's early in the stages. Uh, don't know exactly when that's coming, but I'm excited for that opportunity to just open God's Word and say, well, this is what it says about work. I think a lot of us, we think of work as just a four-letter word. That's something that's not a good thing. In fact, it's a necessary evil to pay the bills at the end of the day. But it's more of a curse than it is anything else. But as we open God's word, as we see what God intended for work, we see that it's actually a good thing. It's a part of God's plan from the very beginning. And as such, it actually matters to him. And because work matters to God, it should matter to us. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to work as a Christian, what it means to work filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're first going to look at that by just talking about what it really means. What does the Bible say about work? Then we're going to take that and then we're going to move into how does that apply to an employee? And how does an employee live differently because of what Jesus has done for them? And then finally, we're going to look at an employer and how people lead differently because of what Jesus has done for them, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's going to be our roadmap this morning, and we're going to be working through, as I said, uh, Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open to that passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Not a lot of verses, but they are packed with some good stuff. So we're going to be working through those the majority of our time this morning. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible says about work as a whole. What does the Bible say about work in the very beginning? And what does it say about work in the very end? And so if we, if we look back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the two, first two chapters of the Bible, what we see is that God creates the heavens and the earth. It's not uh, really that radical for us to say that in church. We, we believe that God created the heavens and earth, but, but God is a God who works. He's a God who is always at work. In fact, Jesus says in the New Testament that my, my Father has been working From the very first day until now. God is a God who works. And what we see actually in Genesis chapter 2 is he gets down into the dirt. He gets his hands dirty and he molds Adam out of the dirt. Work is a good thing in God's eyes. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, it talks about one of the purposes God gave for creating man and woman. Why God created humanity. One of the purposes. And I just want to read this verse to you. This is from uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The purpose God gave for creating humanity was to work. It's a part of God's original plan from the very beginning. God wants us to work, and that's a part of his original plan. I I think that this is really important for us to recognize that all of this takes place before the fall. Before it talks about what happened at the fall, when sin entered into the world, God had already planned for work to be a part of everything. What does that really mean for us today? Well, first of all, I think it's a good thing that that we should recognize that all occupations are equally valid in God's sight. God doesn't have some occupations on a pedestal and others that aren't as good. I think uh, we tend to, in our, in our culture, for better or worse, we, we tend to think of uh, things that we do with our hands as less sophisticated than the things that we do behind a desk. But what we see when we look at the life of Jesus, God himself, is that for 30 years, before he began his ministry, he faithfully was obedient to God as a carpenter, working with his hands. God doesn't look at some positions, some occupations as worth more than others. But also, this has profound implications for the way that we approach our different occupations. A couple months ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about this, this concept of work, and what does work really mean, and why does God institute work as a part of the human life? And I was really discouraged, actually, after listening to this person talk about work, because he had a, an extremely limited view of work, very uh, narrow-minded approach to it. And he basically pointed out that this is very common to every other person that we, that we were coming into contact with. We tend to think of work as only having instrumental value and not having intrinsic value. In other words, we tend to think of work as only having value if it is being used to serve a higher purpose. 
So, for example, work is only good in so much that it gives me uh, income so that way I can support the work of missionaries, so that way I can support the work of the church, so that way I can share the gospel with others. That's what we think of when we think of instrumental value for a job, for an occupation. If that's the case, then the salesman, his job is only valuable in that he makes money that he can give away. Or the mechanic's job is only valuable in so much that he has an opportunity to share the gospel with others. But what we see in scripture is that work doesn't just have an instrumental value. Or it doesn't just have an instrumental value, it also has an intrinsic value. In other words, work is a good thing because work is a good thing. It doesn't have any ulterior motives. It's not just a means to the end. But God has given us work as a way to worship him. And when we connect Sunday to Monday in that way, we begin to understand this connection. I think this has profound implications for the ways that we think of many different things. For example, uh, there's, there's no difference now between uh, a pastor and a farmer. There's no difference between the businessman and the teacher or the mechanic. They're all equally valid in God's sight. No, there's no such thing as a higher calling when we think of work as having intrinsic value. But also, at the same time, there's, there's another thing that is really important for us to recognize when we look at work as having intrinsic value. And that is the, issue, the topic of stay-at-home mothers. You see, if we think of work as only having instrumental value, if it's only valuable for what we can get out of it, then you could argue, some people would say, well, that's a lesser calling to be a stay-at-home mother because you're not making a lot of money. You uh, aren't having the opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And this can be a really negative uh, view of this calling that God has for many of the women that are here and many of the women that are in the church and and outside the church. But if we think of work as having an intrinsic value, if work is valuable just because it is a part of God's original good plan, then this is an opportunity for worship. It's an opportunity to glorify God, to serve him in all of these different things just as much as it is an opportunity in the office, as it is in the field, and all of these different other areas. God calls us to worship him. And one of the ways that we worship him is through working for him. Let's connect Sunday into Monday. Well, this entire topic of work being worship is really what Ephesians chapter 6 talks about. Ephesians 6 is a passage about the relationship between employees and employers. But before we get into that, we have to address probably the elephant in the room, and that is the issue of slavery. If you, ha- if you don't go too far in, in this passage, you're probably going to notice that it's actually not talking about employees and employers, but it's rather talking about slaves and their masters. And uh, frankly, this is one of the reasons why people can get really frustrated with the church, uh, with the Bible. They think it's flawed because they seem to think that it not only condones slavery, but it actually encourages it. But what does the Bible actually say about this topic, about slavery? Well, that's what we're going to look at for the next few minutes before we actually jump into Ephesians chapter 6. And what we're going to see is that while the Bible assumes slavery... In other words, the Bible was written in a context where slavery was present. It was just a part of the reality that the authors were writing in. 
It never condones it. Never approves of it. In fact, it implicitly works to undermine the foundations of slavery. See, when we think of slavery, we, we tend to think of modern-day slavery or, or sex trafficking. And this is a terrible, terrible uh, institution that uh, millions of women and young children are, are captured. They're, they're taken from their homes and from their families and forced to do unspeakable things to, uh, to their owners and for their owners. And that's not what Paul is referring to here at all. When Paul is referring to slavery, he has something very different in mind than what we think of as modern-day slavery. And I just want to just wanted to say right off the bat that when we're talking about slavery and we, we think of the, the sex trade or, or those kind of things, these things are an abomination to God, and they will receive justice, if not in this life, and they will in the next. And God will answer, those people will answer to God for all of the wrongs that they have committed. When we think of slavery, we, we think of, of modern-day slavery. We also think of the, the 1700s, the 1800s, and the, the, the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, but what we also see is that that's pretty different still from what Paul has in mind when he's talking about slavery. I, I love this—well, I don't love it, but there's this quote from a, uh, an abolitionist from the 1700s who, who talks about slavery. And he had the experience of, of going on one of these slave ships that were, that were transporting, transporting uh, slaves from Africa to the New World. And, and he describes it like this. The men, on being brought aboard the ship, are immediately fastened together two by two, by handcuffs on their wrists and by irons riveted on their legs. They are frequently stowed so close as to admit of no other position than lying on their sides, nor will the height between decks, unless directly undergrading, permit the indulgence of an erect posture. In other words, the decks were so small that all of these people that were crowded onto these ships weren't even able to sit up. They only could lie on their sides during these times. The hardships and inconveniences suffered by these men during the passage are scarcely to be enumerated or conceived. They are far more violently affected by seasickness than Europeans. It frequently terminates in death, especially among the women. But the exclusion of fresh air is among the most intolerable. For the purpose of admitting this needful refreshment, most of the ships in the slave trade are provided between the decks with five or six airports on each side of the ship of about five inches in length and four in breadth. While they were in this situation, I frequently went down among them, among the slaves, till at length the room became so extremely hot as to only be bearable for a very short time. It is not in the power of the human imagination to picture a situation more dreadful or more disgusting. In this passage, I cut out a number of the, the more graphic things that he uses to describe the slave trade. At one point, he compares it to a slaughterhouse. Thousands of men, women, and children died in this despicable practice, and that is not what God has in mind when he is telling slaves to endure in this passage. So what is ancient slavery? What exactly did it look like? Well, first of all, ancient slavery wasn't based upon race. So you could find slaves that were Greek, Roman, Jewish, African, Persian, you name it. It wasn't the systematic enslavement of one race by another. Second, uh, most slaves actually were eventually freed. 
Most slaves earned up enough money that they were able to free themselves by the time they were about 30. In fact, many people saw slavery, this is going to sound ridiculous, but they actually saw slavery as a way to get ahead in life. They would sell themselves to someone, and that person, in turn, would actually pay for their training, for their education, and so they would begin to acquire all of these different skills. In fact, most of the doctors of that day started out as slaves. It's a way for people to get ahead. Second, or another thing, is that most of the slaves of those days were actually uh, put there by debt. It was a financial issue. If you had to owe someone money and you couldn't pay them when the collector came calling, well, then you were forced into slavery to be their slave until you paid off of that debt. And then eventually, once you, you paid off the debt, they actually gave you a slight income in addition to that so you could buy your own freedom, and then you could go on your way. As you can see, slavery is much different in, in this context that Paul is writing in than the context of what we typically think of when we talk about slavery today. But at the same time, slavery, ancient slavery, it wasn't that much better. Slaves were still beaten at, whim, at, a, at the master's whim. They were still denied their own freedom. They were still killed basically for any and every reason that the master had whenever they felt like it. So does the Bible condone this slavery? Absolutely not. What we see in the grand story of scripture, it is from cover to cover, the story of God freeing people from slavery to sin. The entire story of the Bible is about freeing slaves from sin. One of the most important events in the church or in the uh, people of God's history is the freeing of the Israelites from slavery in Exodus. There are passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, condemning slave traders, those who enslave people and catch them. And it talks about if slaves had the opportunity, they should try to free themselves. The entire book of Philemon is a letter from Paul to a slave owner, Philemon, trying to tell him that he needs to free his slave, Onesimus, because Onesimus is a brother in Christ. See, every single human is made in God's image and as such deserves to be free. Freedom is an intrinsic right of humanity, something that each person deserves. Slavery is not a good thing in the Bible. It's not a good thing today. It's not a good thing, period. But it's a reality that Paul had to address in that day and age. But as we see, as we make the transition from slavery into work, what we see is that there's a lot of similarities between ancient slavery and modern day employment. And that's not supposed to be a joke. There's just uh, the employers and the employees are relatively similar situations as masters and slaves as opposed to what we think of for masters and slaves. And so this text that we're going to be looking at, that we're going to be diving into the rest of our time this morning, has a lot to say for us, has a lot that it can teach us. And we're going to be focusing on how we can make our work worship to God. First, by looking at how that applies to Christian employees. So if you have a boss, this is written for you. And let's go ahead and read this. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. This will be found in your sermon notes if, if you don't have a Bible. Uh, so please follow along as I read aloud here. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. What Paul is telling us here, he says, I'm going to assume that you all have the Holy Spirit within you, that you are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the way that you act in your job, the way that you act when you are around people in the workplace should be different. And he gives us five different ways that the Christian employees should be different. And that's what we're going to go through here. First, Christian employees, they show respect and reverence for those who are in authority over them, for their bosses. Christian employees show respect and reverence. Bugs me to no end when I see Christians not showing respect to those who are around them, especially when they seem to reject those who are placed in authority over them. God has instituted authority, sometimes uh, for better, sometimes for worse, uh, to be in charge of us. And as a part of God's plan to help us grow in holiness, sometimes it grows in holiness by seeing someone that we just want to be like because they're a good example. Sometimes grow in holiness because we have to deal with a lot of patience to get through wrestling with that person. But God has instituted these authorities, and it is our calling as Christians to show respect and reverence for those. For some people, uh, and in some situations, this is really easy. When Crystal and I lived in the Chicagoland area, she had what she considers to be one of the best bosses on the face of the planet. This was a guy who uh, challenged her when she needed to be challenged, who, uh, who uh, showed respect to her when, when she needed respect. And there were many times where Crystal would come home and wanted to do her best for him because he demanded it, but in a way that she desired to give that to him. Countless times where Crystal would come home and she'd be frustrated with the guy. She never lost respect for him. But what about situations where the person that we work for or that we are under, who is our boss, doesn't deserve respect? Well, if we look at the original context that this was written in, this was written to slaves who could be beaten by their masters. And Paul doesn't give them an exception. It doesn't give us an exception either. We're called to show respect and reverence for those who are in authority positions over us. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't report unethical uh, behaviors or or patterns that, that your boss is doing. It doesn't mean that you should partake in those, that you should do those things yourself. It doesn't even mean that you shouldn't stand up for yourself. I once worked for a paint crew, and the, the supervisor of this crew, uh, he verbally berated me and abused me in front of every single other person on this team. And it was really, really frustrating and really, really hard to deal with. Even though I didn't want to show him respect, and frankly, he didn't deserve my respect, it's part of God's calling for me to show him respect. Did I stand up for myself? Well, absolutely, I did. I tried to do so in a way that showed him respect because he was placed in an authority position over me. As Christians and as Christian employees, we should show respect and reverence for those who are our bosses. Second, as Christian employees, we should work with a sincere heart. We should work with a sincere heart, or in other words, we should have a good attitude in our jobs. I know for a lot of us, we we can tend to be in these positions that aren't that good, that that can be kind of frustrating, that don't have uh, a lot of motivation to do them. And frankly, that's just caused by Genesis 3. We talked a little bit about Genesis 1 and 2 earlier, but Genesis 3 talks about the fall of humanity and how everything became tainted with sin. 
when that happened, and uh, that includes the job and the workplace. And so a lot of this is caused by that. But, but we're called to nonetheless have a sincere heart, to have a good attitude in the workplace. We may find our jobs unsatisfying. We may think that it's easier just to come to work, punch in, and wait until five. That's not what God wants from us. God wants us to be different. He wants us to use our work as an opportunity to worship him. Louis Giglio is the pastor of a church in Atlanta. And he tells a story of when he was in high school. He worked as a copy boy for a company. And he said that this was one of the most mundane, easiest jobs probably on the face of the planet. He went to work and no one else did anything because it was so easy. But when he went to work, he said that my, his goal was to become the best copy boy in that business's history. He wanted to become so good that they would eventually make a plaque after him. Not because he actually wanted a plaque, but that was just symbolic of saying, I want to do such a good job that people are going to remember me as the copy boy for the rest of this company's existence. He didn't do that because he wanted fame, obviously. He, he did that because he wanted to have the right attitude in his position. He wanted to serve God with a sincere heart. Next, Christian employees work as if they are working for Christ. Christian employees work as if they are working for Christ. This is probably the most foundational sentence in this text. In fact, you could probably sum up everything that's said in this passage in these words. Work as if you are working for Christ. If we do this, if we make that transition from thinking of just Sunday being in a silo and connect that with the rest of the work, work week, then we're on the right track. You guys remember those WWJD bracelets that were pretty popular about a decade ago, and sometimes they, they make a comeback here or there? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about marketing one that says uh, WWYDIJY. Let me read this. WWYDIJWYB. What would you do if Jesus was your boss? If we have that mindset, if we recognize that Jesus is our boss, that what we do is a way for working for him and changes the ways that we work. When we connect Sunday with Monday, when we recognize that God is the Lord of our life, not just on Sunday, but also the rest of our time together. then we really do see that we're not just working for an employer, we're working for Jesus himself. It's really encouraging, but that can also be really scary too, can it? On the one hand, Jesus can be really pleased with us when we do a good job. On the other hand, Jesus would be less than pleased when we're slacking off at our jobs. Work as if you are working for Christ. Uh, next one, Christian employees do not need supervision. Christian employees do not need supervision. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that context and why I'm saying this. This doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian if you need some on-the-job training or if you have a supervisor who wants to work with you on certain projects, but it means that you shouldn't work any differently when you are being supervised than when you aren't being supervised. When I was in seminary, one of the jobs that I worked in order to uh, pay the bills and try to work my way through seminary was I worked as a toilet scrubber for a megachurch. It was not a glamorous job by any means, but it was something that I had to do uh, to make it through. And I went in for the interview uh, for this job and actually got rejected from this 
position, and it was kind of surprising to me. I, I thought that I could hold a toilet brush pretty well in my left hand and a, a bottle of Windex pretty well in my right hand, but I, I guess the guy thought differently. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from the guy who interviewed me and said, hey, that position's still open. Do you want it? And I, I thought to myself, well, not really, but that, that I don't have anything else, so yeah, I'll take it. Apparently, the guy thought I must have been working on my vacuuming skills in the off-season and decided there was a roster spot open. Come and join the team. You can, you can join us, and maybe you can make the, make the final cut. So I worked in this job for several years while I was in seminary, and it was remarkable how everyone's product, many of the people, not everyone, I don't want to say that, um, many of the people that I worked with, their productivity just took an absolute nosedive when the boss wasn't around. On the flip side, they had some of the fastest reflexes I've ever seen when the boss rounded the corner. They could go from sitting to acting like they were working just like that. And in fact, I, I was amazed. I wanted to videotape it because it was so incredible to see how fast these people can make that transition because the boss was there at that point. I worked there for two years. Sometimes it was fun, sometimes it wasn't. And after I was done, I was turning in my keys to to the guy I worked for, and, and he looks at me and he said, Jordan, I'm so glad that we came back and hired you. I said, well, okay, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you hired me too. And then he said, you never needed a supervisor. I always knew that you were working, whether I was there or not. He said, you really reflected Christ in those situations. You really showed that you believe what you said. As Christians, we shouldn't need a supervisor. There shouldn't be any different in the way that we work when someone is present and the way that we work when no one is present. Christian employees don't need supervision. And finally, Christian employees understand that they work for God himself. Christian employees understand that they work for God himself. If you look at verse 8, which is the last verse in this first section that we're talking about, it talks about how both masters and slaves, or employers and employees, will one day receive rewards for all of the things that they did here on earth. I think a lot of times that this is just absolutely fascinating. In the New Testament, not only does God give us the free gift of salvation when we are completely undeserving and unworthy of it, But not only that, he gives us gifts when we do a good job of doing what we're supposed to do anyway. For some of us, this can be a little unnerving, can make us a little uh, standoffish, because we don't like the idea of working for God in order to get something back. Sounds a little bit too much like works righteousness. But there's nothing wrong with working for God, knowing that he's going to reward you, in the last day. In fact, both Paul here and Jesus in the Gospels say multiple times that this is a good motivation for doing things when the other motivations aren't enough. A lot of times when we think of this, we think of, okay, well, yeah, God's going to reward me when I'm a good Christian, when I share the gospel with other people, when I disciple people, when I give consistently at the church. And that's all true. God does reward our growth in Christian maturity. But God also rewards us when we do a good job at our job. That's what Paul talks about right here. When we do a good job at our calling, at our occupation, at our work, God will reward us. 
if we slack off for the rest of our lives because we think that the work that we are doing is beneath us, then we are in for a rude awakening when we stand before God. God rewards his children for serving him because they understand that they serve God himself. And that's a little bit of a look at how Christian employees can worship God as they work. They worship God as they work by showing their bosses honor and reverence, by serving God himself, by, by recognizing that they really work for Jesus, by having the right attitude in all that they do. But what about bosses? What about the employers of this world? Let's continue reading at what Paul says here. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. I think that this is so short. It's only one verse in comparison to the rest that was coming before it. It's, only, it's so short because it's so remarkable for the people of that day. So you remember, this is written to masters and slaves. And so for Paul to tell masters that they should have the same attitude as their slaves would have been absolutely, completely incomprehensible to the people of that day. What do you mean, they might have been saying? Does that mean that I have to obey my slaves just the way that they obey me? Well, of course not. That's nonsensical. But you can show respect. You can show honor to your employees nonetheless. The way that Christ lives in us changes the way that we lead in the workplace. If you look in this passage, it tells us that uh, masters should stop their threatening. It was very common in that day and age for threats to be the primary motivator for getting work done. And Paul tells masters to stop. So how do they motivate how should we motivate if we don't motivate via, uh, through, uh, through threatening? I think there's two different ways that Christian bosses should motivate their employees. And that is through uh, grace and through humility, among other things. Grace and humility. Should show grace in the workplace because Jesus has shown grace to us. Now that doesn't mean that you should let yourself get walked all over. Doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences, sometimes even resulting in termination for poor work done. But in those situations, in all situations, grace should be shown in the workplace. Grace is an incredible motivator. Second, another incredible motivator is just showing humility. Know that you are not infallible and that you've screwed up many times. Now, this doesn't mean that you should air your dirty laundry to everyone. It doesn't mean that you should come to work and to the staff meeting every Monday morning with a list of 40 different ways that you've screwed up in the past week and hand it out to everyone. Because frankly, that'll do more harm than good in a lot of situations. But there's nothing, in my, there's nothing more motivational than the authenticity of a leader saying, you know, the ship is going in the wrong direction. And it's going in the wrong direction because I've been steering it the wrong direction. And here's how we're going to fix it. Show your humility in the workplace as a way to motivate those who work for you. Another thing that Paul talks about is how uh, employers should not show favoritism in the workplace. This can be really hard. Frankly, we are drawn to some people more than we are to other people. We like people. It's not a bad thing. We just like some people more. 
It's a part of who we are. We get along better with other people than others. But we can't show favoritism in the workplace because favoritism is actually antithetical to the gospel. It doesn't mesh with the gospel. Jesus didn't show us favoritism. If he did, none of us would have made it. When he offered us salvation. I think one of the most important, yet one of the hardest ways that this favoritism plays out is when you have Christian employees working for you. And when they're not doing a good job at their job, either because of sin and they're just, they're being lazy or because it's not a good fit for them. And how do you come to those people who are your brothers, your sisters in Christ and tell them, well, it's, it's time for us to go our separate ways. But this passage tells us that we shouldn't show favoritism in those situations either. Favoritism means that you're going to overlook something when someone's doing a bad job. But as a Christian employer, as a Christian boss, the mo- your primary responsibility in that position is to glorify God, work as though you were worshiping God, and doing the best job at what you are called to do that you can be. And in some situations, that means that you have to cut someone loose. To show favoritism to them would be antithetical to the gospel, and it would be unfaithful to the calling that God has given you. That's going to be really hard. It sounds really easy for me to just stand up here. I don't have anyone who works for me. Uh, stand up here and say, yeah, this is part, this is what the gospel says. But God's grace will work through you. You can trust God in these situations. Each and every one of us has the opportunity to glorify God, to honor God in our work. And as God's children, our work is an act of worship to him. Our work is an act of worship to him. This is really important because it's not just about vocational occupations. See, most of the stuff that we do, and most of the work that we do is not occupational. And this isn't just referring to our occupations, our vocations, but this is referring to all things that we do. We can worship God when we are fixing up our house because it is a way of working and worshiping. We worship God when we change dirty diapers. When we plant the garden, we are worshiping God in those situations. Worship God in all that you do. It's my plea that we as a church would make that, that bridge, make that connection between Sunday and Monday. That we would stop looking at work as just having instrumental value or only looking at it for what we can get out of it and start thinking of it as having intrinsic value or being worthy of, of being done well because it's an act of worship to God. I love the way that Martin Luther King Jr. puts it. He says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or as Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry, he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job very well. A couple years ago, a friend of mine passed away after a battle with cancer for a few years. and He was in his mid-60s, and he had worked countless hours and countless jobs to try to provide for his family. I remember he would get up early each morning so he could work two full-time jobs as a way to provide when his wife was struggling through various hospitalizations and one of his children was severely handicapped. And he did it all 
without complaining. And he did it all as if he was serving God himself. When he began undergoing chemo treatments, most people would have taken a break from work during that time, but he committed himself to continue working. Because he knew that if he continued working for just a few months longer, he would be able to earn pension, and then he could continue to provide for his family after he had passed away, which he knew was just inevitable. He was so weak that he couldn't even lift 20-pound objects, and yet he's working in a factory with demanding physical labor. And he did it all without complaining. At his funeral... This ver- these passages or these verses came to mind as well as the passage of the parable of the talents. And I just remember thinking to myself that here was a man who was far more faithful with far less than I have been blessed with. And I guarantee that at the end of his life, after he had after he had passed away, he heard the voice of a Jewish carpenter saying, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. Enter into the joy of your master. You will be set over much. And friends, I pray that same thing for us. That one day as we are finished with this life, that we get before Jesus himself and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will entrust you with much. And this is a way for us to worship him here on earth and worship him throughout eternity. Friends, the things that you do, whether it is becoming a missionary or whether it is staying right here in Spencer, whether it is vocational or whether you are a stay-at-home mother, this is a way to worship God. Let us connect Sunday to Monday. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the grace that you offer us at the cross. And we thank you so much that from that grace, you change us. God, I I just want to ask for forgiveness for myself, and I'm sure uh, representative of the many people here um, who confess that there have been times where they haven't worked as if we are working for you. And so, God, I pray that you would forgive me, that you would forgive all of us in here, and that you would help us to have the mindset to work as worship. God, we thank you so much that you overlook our shortcomings and our failures because of your Son, Jesus. And we pray that as we continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to do these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.